For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Uh, for newcomers, I'm Tygen Layton, the uh, guiding Dharma teacher at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. And uh, I'm very, very happy to have as our guest speaker today, Kokyo Henkel. Uh, Kokyo is uh, my younger Dharma brother. He received uh, priest ordination and Dharma transmission from my teacher, Tension Reb Anderson. And uh, Kokyo was the teacher at Santa Cruz Zen Center and is currently teaching at Austin Zen Center in Texas. Um, Kokyo is extremely knowledgeable about all kinds of Buddhist teachings and Zen teachings and also has done Tibetan or does some Tibetan practice and uh, is going to be talking about one of my favorite koans today. So, Kokyo, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Tagen Song, for inviting me. Good to see you. And uh, my other elder Dharma brother, Paul Disco, great to see you. You here and uh, and all of you in Chicago or wherever else you might be. <clears throat> Today, I'd like to talk about this story, uh, case thirty-seven in the Book of Serenity. In the old days in China, ninth century thereabouts, there were two uh, great practitioners named Guishan and Yangshan. And uh, they actually, the two of them, teacher and student, formed one of the five houses of Zen, we say, the five schools of Zen in China. One of them was the Guiyang lineage based on the, on the stories of the interactions between these two people of the way, Guishan and Yangshan. <clears throat> I think it's fair to say even that the style of that house, of the Guiyang house, was based on the dialogues, the interactions between these two, Guishan as the teacher and his 
student Yangshan. They had many conversations. And this is one of them. First, I'll, I'll just read the story and then we can talk about it. So, uh, this case 37 is called Guishan's Karmic Consciousness. Guishan, the teacher, asked his student, Yangshan, the kind of, this is how they often had these conversations. That, Sometimes the teacher would ask the students something to kind of check out where they were at, where their, what their understanding was, or how they would express something. And this is one of those stories. The teacher, Guishan, asked his student, Yangshan, if someone came to you and said, all living beings just have karmic consciousness, unceasing and unclear, with no foundation to rely on. If they came to you and said that, how would you prove that statement in actual life? And Yangshan, the student, replied, if a monk comes by, I would call out to him, hey, you. And if the monk turns his head when I call him, I would say to him, what is it? And if he hesitates, I would say, not only is their karmic consciousness, or not only is karmic consciousness unceasing and unclear, but there is no foundation to rely on. And Guishan said, good. That's a good proof you came up with for this statement. That's the story. So part of the background here is uh, this term karmic consciousness. Karmic consciousness. Karma means um, intentional action. So they are our ordinary consciousness is karmic it's it, and it's active what we mean by karmic consciousness is this active mind this active conditioned karmically conditioned mind meaning that every thought we have is arising dependent on these other conditions it's kind of outside of our control Every experience we're having is, is coming to be dependent on all these past conditions. It's, it's, a, it's a karmically conditioned consciousness. Um, it's basically out of control. 
there. And it's this way, unceasingly, our whole life, there's this karmic consciousness that's conditioned by all our past events, and uh, we're not really in control of it. It's it's uh, conceptual. There's always a story behind it. We might even notice even dreams, of course, are are conceptual. But even this hazy kind of state, sometimes I notice uh, I'm asleep and I'm not quite dreaming, but there's still kind of some like low-level conceptual activity going on, some kind of like unclear, murky storytelling that maybe doesn't even make much sense. But uh, that would be an example of like this unceasing, almost unceasing themes, maybe truly unceasing stream of karmic consciousness kind of conditioned conceptual dualistic by dualistic consciousness we mean uh consciousness seems to be divided into a uh a felt subject experiencing a world of objects it seems to be divided like that. And that's how karmic consciousness is. Unceasing, unclear. I think unclear here means just because it's, it's, um, it's confusing. Even when we feel like we got a handle on something conceptually, it still um, doesn't all make complete sense. And uh, later, even something that did seem to make sense we later hear that we were wrong, but we didn't quite understand it. So it's it's unceasing, unclear, conditioned, conceptual, dualistic, um, uncontrollable mess. <laughs> I think we could talk about karmic consciousness like this. And it, all sentient beings, that's, that's what the story says, right? Somebody comes and says, all living beings, all sentient beings just have this karmic consciousness, unceasing and unclear with no foundation to rely on. There's no, it's not like we can, we can grab a hold of some part of it and, uh, and thereby kind of stop it or something. There's no foundation there. It's just continually changing conditioned stuff. We try to make the best of it. I think everybody does. Maybe not even humans, but even even the animal realm, for example, tries to make the best of this karmic consciousness by like trying to find some good food to eat and some some other creatures to mate with and live as long as they can and and so on. And we humans kind of do that too. And uh, it's natural and it seems appropriate that we try to make the best of it um, and, you know, help others along the way as best we can. Um, that's human life. But then Buddha Dharma is um, proposing that, that um, maybe there's more to the story than just trying to make the best of this mess. Maybe there's some other uh, possibility. 
seems like that's what the Buddha was uh, looking for when he set out on his quest. I think he saw some problems with this karmic consciousness and, uh, and thought to himself, is this all there is to it? Can't I um, find some freedom with this karmic consciousness? So the Buddha's story is that all living beings have this karmic consciousness. It's unceasingly conditioned. It's unclear. There's nothing there to rely on. Uh, And also, the Buddha teaches that there is Buddha nature, which also all sentient beings have Buddha nature, which sounds kind of different than this karmic consciousness. Karmic consciousness is always active. Karmic means it's always active. Um, Buddha nature is often taught as um, unchanging. Always thus. It's not active, actually. It's, um, in, its, in its very nature, in its essence, it is unmoving, unchanging, uh, inactive, stillness. And... Uh, Karma consciousness is conditioned, but Buddha nature is unconditioned. It's not arising and ceasing dependent on conditions. It's, uh, it's not actually arising and ceasing at all. That would be changing karmic if, if it was. And just like uh, karmic consciousness is conceptual, Buddha nature is non-conceptual. It's not... Um, It's not forming uh, stories about itself like karmic consciousness does. And uh, karmic consciousness is dualistic, seems to be divided into a a knowing subject and a known object. Buddha nature is non-dual. It's not divided So there are these two teachings. All beings only have this karmic consciousness. It's active, it's conditioned, it's conceptual, and it's dualistic. And at the same time, all living beings have or even are in their true nature, Buddha nature, which is unchanging, unconditioned non-conceptual, non-dual. That's not really brought up in the story here. Guishan's is asking Yangshana about proving that this karmic consciousness, the, the messy one, is um, continuous, uh, unceasing, and unclear, and there's nothing there to rely on. But you could say in the background, there's this other additional teaching that there is an unconditioned 
unchanging, non-dual Buddha nature. So is it like um, all sentient beings have both of these? Is it like two streams of being that all beings have? They have a karmic consciousness and they have a Buddha nature and they're like, and they're like riding along side by side. I don't think it's quite like that. Could it be that our true nature is the unchanging, unconditioned suchness, but that very Buddha nature appears as karmic consciousness? The very nature of karmic consciousness is unchanging, unconditioned Buddha nature. But it appears to us as karmic consciousness. And that's what we are engaged with, is this karmic consciousness, because that's the world of experience. I think it's fair to say that every experience we ever have is an experience of karmic consciousness. But meanwhile, simultaneously, there's an experiencing of every experience. And the experiencing just spacious awareness itself is inseparable from experience. It's like to looking at the at the um, same reality from two different perspectives. But we're mostly really used to this karmic consciousness perspective. That's what we're that's what we're really engaged in as sentient beings. We might not even notice this unconditioned Buddha nature. In fact, probably most people don't notice it, except that the Buddhas have pointed it out. And when we sit still and settled and relaxed for a while, uh, sometimes we have some sense of it. There's, there's an unchanging, um, ever-present, bright, clear, not unclear, clear aspect of our moment-to-moment experience that's actually not changing. So that's part of the setup here. There's karmic consciousness, and the true nature of karmic consciousness is called Buddha nature. And this perfectly pure Buddha nature that is our truly who we are, our true self, uh, appears as karma consciousness. It expresses itself as karma consciousness. It, it manifests as karma consciousness. Often people ask when we get into these kinds of discussions, well, why would it do that? It's such a messy, painful realm. And uh, one story we could tell is because it, it can. Buddha nature can express itself as karmic consciousness. And because it has the power to do so, it does so. It's free. It's so free. 
that it's free to express itself as karmic consciousness. And therefore, it does. That's, you know, really free. Buddha nature is so free that it can um, manifest as total delusion. How awesome <laughs> that Buddha nature can perform such magic. So, uh, so here in the story, Wei Shan asks Yang Shan, if somebody comes to you and says, all beings just have karmic consciousness, unceasing, unclear, with no foundation to rely on. How would you prove this in experience? How would you prove this in actual life, in, in an ordinary example? What's an ordinary example you could bring up to show that this is so? You could bring up many, many examples. Well, this very conversation is proving it is so, it seems. But uh, the example that Yangshan brought up is, uh, says, if a monk comes, I... Um, I would call him and say, hey, you. And he might turn his head. And if he does, I'd ask, what is it? So this, um, this test here of, of Yangshan's seems to be a kind of um, almost like a standard practice in, um, in Guishan and Yangshan's lineage actually, it might have started with Baijiang. Maybe some, some Zen ancestors did this before, but we had a recorded example of Baijiang. Um, it sounds like he did this kind of maybe regularly, more than once. It's, I think it says in the commentary, Baijiang would gather an assembly of practitioners together and then, as soon as they gathered and sat down, he'd pick up his staff and start swinging it around and kind of like try to drive them out of the room, scare them out of a zendo. And they'd all go running, panic. Uh, and right in the middle of this chaotic situation, he'd say, hey! And they'd stop and turn back and look at him. And he'd say, what is it? I'm almost picturing that it was almost like a, a practice method of Baijiang. And maybe he could, if he did it like every day, it would kind of wouldn't work so well. People would get used to it. But um, I don't know. Maybe once a year he would, he would try out this practice. And um, Baijiang's disciple Huang Bo inherited this practice also. We have a story where, um, by, where Huang Bo also would gather an assembly of practitioners. Um, it all gets settled in his endo. He'd pick up his staff and start swinging it around. They'd all jump up and start running out of the room. And uh, he'd say, hey! And they'd stop. And uh, they'd stop and look at him. And uh, in this case of Huang Bo, when they stopped and looked at him, he, he said, the moon is like a curved bow. 
curved crescent moon, bow-like moon. There's little rain and much wind. Wango said at that time, instead of saying, what is it? And uh, one commentary said that Linji did this, had the same method of, of um, chasing everybody out and saying, hey, and when they turn and say, um, what is it? But I, I couldn't find the story in the record of Linji, but maybe he did that too. He was, he was a disciple of Wangbo. And, uh, and Guishan is also a disciple of Baijiang, the one who maybe came up with this method. So it's kind of like um, Baijiang's maybe most prominent disciples, Huangbo and Guishan, uh, both seem to have this method, or at least Yangshan's bringing up this method to his teacher Guishan. Another, another very similar to this is that. Um, Shan and Yangshan were standing there, and Guishan, um, the teacher, passed a water pitcher to his student, Yangshan. And uh, Yangshan was about to take hold of the water pitcher, and Guishan pulled it back <laughs> and said, what is it? Almost the same. The, the idea here is like... Um, Something, you know, something's going on in karmic consciousness, some chaotic, um, unceasing, unclear, messy situation that um, seems like these teachers would sometimes create a really messy situation by like swinging their staff around and getting everybody like running out of the zendo, like really chaotic. But in this case, it's just a little bit messy. Weishan passes a water pitcher, Yangshan's about to take hold of it in this expected way. I think karmic consciousness has a lot of expectations and assumptions. Okay, I'm going to get the picture from my teacher. It's it's a pretty simple thing here. He's passing it. But then it doesn't happen. The teacher pulls it back. And in in this moment, I I imagine that that, uh, Yangshan kind of stopped, just like, hey, you. When the water pitcher's pulled away, uh, Yangshan was like, huh? Something unexpected happened here. What? It's almost like, what did, you know, what happened? And then Guishan asked in, in, this, in this very present situation of unexpectedness, Guishan asked, what is it? So, um, why did, what was it, why did, this, this lineage kind of pass on this method of um, stirring things up, shouting out, hey, you, stopping everyone in their tracks, and then asking, what is it? Why did this become like a Zen thing? Um, one way of looking at this, that's uh, maybe a little bit um, conceptual. This is karmic consciousness speaking now, kind of unraveling this story in a kind of conceptual way. But um, to me, it strikes me as kind of a kind of interesting way to look at this is that um, 
that karmic consciousness is going along and anything that suddenly can stop that, like, hey, you are pulling away a water pitcher at the last moment. This stopping is like uh, this practice of shamatha. Shamatha um, in, in uh, Chinese is translated literally as stopping. So um, there's various methods you can use to, to stop the mind in its tracks, even for just a moment. Like I think these stories are like, like a one-moment shamatha. Shamatha means calm abiding. But as I say in Chinese, instead of translating it as calm abiding, they just translate it as stopping. It's something about this flow of conceptual thinking, finding some way to just, even for a moment, just stop. And uh, maybe this was a Zen, a Zen method of shamatha, is to just, um, in the middle of karmic conscious flow, to call out, hey, you. And uh, if I think what's being pointed out here is that if we're walking along the street and somebody says, hey, Kokyo, and I stop and turn my head, there's a moment where um, there's just an open presence. It's, it's kind of like whatever I was thinking up to that moment just got cut off by hearing the sound of my name. And uh, it stopped for a moment. And maybe the contrast, if you really rouse up a lot of chaos first, like start stirring up the zendo with a staff, and getting everybody running around the zendo, then when you say, hey, wait a minute, and everybody stops, maybe they really notice more vividly the, uh, this, this vivid, present awareness with no content for just a moment, maybe, or two, or three. It's kind of like instant shamatha, Calm, clear, uh, fresh, non-conceptual, unconditioned presence. Could it be that, hey, you, huh, is a kind of a stopping practice of shamatha. And then in the stopped presence of shamatha, a teacher can ask, what is it? So that you, along with this practice of shamatha, calm abiding, there is the practice of vipassana, which means like clear seeing. In Chinese, they translate it as seeing. So shamatha and vipassana are in Chinese, literally stopping and seeing. And, uh, Seeing is like a special kind of seeing, like, like looking into the nature of what's happening um, in the present. So back in the old, old days when the Buddha would teach shamatha and vipassana, he would teach them in that order, that sequence. First, you really need to settle the mind and um, to some extent... 
and there was some argument about how much extent really let the let the um, karmic consciousness really chill, like really settle. And um, I think in Zen, we usually don't say it has to stop completely. It just has to really be settled. So we're not so caught up in it. We're not so trying to figure everything out with our karmic consciousness. It's sort of just, you know, streaming along in the background. Karmic consciousness is, we could have that kind of shamatha. We're settling more and more into the present. And then in this present abiding, then we can start looking, looking around, inquiring. The practice of Vipassana is like inquiry into what's happening. I think in, in uh, at least modern Zen practice, I think there's a lot of emphasis on the calm abiding part. Just follow the breath, um, sit, sit still, l- let everything settle. Um, and then um, before we have a chance to get into the Vipassana inquiry part, the bell rings and we're on to the next event. And maybe, maybe outside of Zazen, we study the teachings and take up these koans and so on. And um, that has a kind of inquiry, uh, seeing kind of aspect to it. Um, but when the Buddha first taught these, you, using um, shamatha and vipassana together in sitting meditation or standing meditation, I think in these stories, it's like, they're running out of the hall. It says, wait a minute. And they stop and stand there. And in that standing moment of shamatha, the teacher asks, what is it? Like, inquire into what it is right now. Um, it's a one-moment shamatha practice of, hey. And now one moment of vipassana. What is it? And uh, most of these stories... Like, like this one that was just brought up. Uh, what is it? Um, the assembly it doesn't really practice vipassana. <laughs> they they um, they get caught up back in their thinking mind. They're already in their thinking mind. What's going on here? We got to get out of the zendo. He's chasing us with our staff. Stop! Oh, and then what is it? And they maybe go back to their habitual thing. What is, what is what's the right answer to Guishan's question? What is it? Um, I'm not sure what it is. I guess we're just standing here. Now they've already lost it. So um, maybe this what is it is like a Vipassana instruction in the moment. And maybe some of the assembly actually used it that way in this startled moment of presence when they heard what is it, they um, immediately looked to see what is this happening right now? And maybe even very quickly, they could even ask such things as like, is it, you know, this it we're talking about, what is it? It is the whole totality of it. What is it? One could ask, well, is it inside or outside, for example? Oh, can't quite say. It's neither inside nor outside. Is it 
changing or unchanging, where I can hear the breaths of the parenting assembly seem to be moving in and out, but actually there's a stillness that seems to be not moving. Is it limited to this room or is it boundless? Does it include everything even outside the zendo? And maybe some of them started to ask themselves, what is it actually right now in this kind of way? We could even, if we have a little, a little more time, maybe even ask regarding what it is. Is this world of a bunch of monks in the zendo standing here bewildered and, uh, and Baijang standing, holding his staff with his beady eyes, looking out at everyone. Is this world of color and sound and sensation of my racing heart? Is all of this experience anything in addition to the pure knowing of it? Are all these colors, sounds, and sensations anything other than awareness itself taking the form of changing color and sound and sensation? If the monks had a few moments, they might be able to ask this kind of question about what it is. But if they weren't used to asking this kind of question, maybe they wouldn't. They just go back to trying to figure things out with the conceptual mind. What Vipassana would be like uh, asking these very experiential questions about the present experience, about this startled moment of presence. When we suddenly turn our head, we don't know what's happening. That's the that's Vipassana question of what is it? It's not a theoretical question, trying to figure out what it is. It's an exploration of it itself, the present it. That's an other theoretical it, but what is it right now? But there's layers and layers of exploration of it possible. So maybe... That's why these ancient teachers like to pass on this method of stirring people up, saying, hey, they would stop and rest for a moment in vivid presence. And then the teachers would ask, what is it? Because it's not just a matter of being startled and present. I would say Buddha's teaching is not just about being present, actually. I think that's, again, what often gets emphasized in Zen, just be totally present. But there's some seeing involved, some inquiry into like, what is this presence? Especially these types of questions like, is it inside or outside? Is it, is it moving or is it actually totally still? 
Is it... Is it in its aspect of color, sound, and sensation anything other than unchanging Buddha nature itself, expressing itself with this constant flowing, changing color, sound, and sensation? These kinds of seeing are possible in any moment of stopping. And I think this last question is is certainly a subtle one. It's possible to explore, but it's nice to be really quite settled to ask, um, are these colors, sounds, and sensations every experience of any possible type of experience that we're having right now? of color, sound, sensation, thought, and emotion, and so on, are these experiences anything in addition to just knowing itself, to just experiencing itself, to awareness itself? In other words, is there, we're looking at the color of the screen. Maybe you have a like a black border of your Zoom screen, could ask, is this experience of black something in addition to the awareness of black? There definitely is awareness of black, right? But are there two different things called experience of black and then the experiencing of it? Are there two different things called black and the knowing of black? I don't think so. I don't think there's two different things. There's just one reality. And I think most accurately, we could say um, this, there is the experiencing of black. That's what we really can verify. Whether there is something out there called black or not. Um, we actually don't know because all we know is the experiencing of black. For example, another dialogue between Guishan and Yangshan is Guishan, again, the teacher kind of checking out the student's understanding. Teacher Guishan asks the student Yangshan, what is the wondrous, pure, clear mind? Now we're not talking about karmic consciousness, unceasing and unclear. Here, Guishan is talking about Buddha nature. What is the wondrous, inconceivable, pure, clear mind? And Yangshan said, it is mountains, rivers, and earth. It is the sun, moon, and stars. It's not that the... uh, that there's just our experience of mountains, rivers, and earth. There's no mountains, rivers, and earth other than the experiencing of them for us, strictly speaking, right? Um, We can't verify any mountains, rivers, and earth other than knowing of them. 
which we can verify. In fact, we are verifying every moment very easily. There is knowing of mountains, rivers, and earth if, that, if we happen to be looking at them. So it's not even really that mountains, rivers, and earth are appearing due to some wondrous, pure, clear mind, or even appearing in wondrous, pure, clear mind. The way that Yangshan says it, what is the wondrous, pure, clear mind? It is mountains, rivers, and earth. It is the sun, moon, and stars. Inseparable. They're not too, it's not like a mind aware of mountains, rivers, and earth. They're one reality. And that can sound to our comrade consciousness like a really far out, wacky kind of statement. Maybe to us Zen practitioners, it doesn't sound that far out, but to most people, they would say that's, that's crazy talk. But actually, it's actually our experience for everybody. If we're looking at mountains, rivers, and earth, if we're looking at stars, sun, and moon, there's nothing there experientially other than wondrous, pure, clear mind taking the form of sights and sounds. Sometimes the uh, river makes a sound. The sound of the river is the one, is the pure, clear mind experientially for us. Is it not so? It's nothing, nothing really mystical there. It's just direct, obvious experience. But then the funny thing, kind of really actually crazy thing for us is that our karmic consciousness assumes uh, there's, there's something else going on. It doesn't just stay with our direct experience. That all of this is just awareness itself. We start making a karmic story. No, no. Because we're seeing a very similar looking mountain, it must be out there. Because, you know, what color is it? We ask our friend. Oh, it's blue. See, we just proved that it's out there. Because we're both seeing something. But the Buddhas and ancestors say that doesn't prove that there's anything out there. That just proves that we have similar karmic consciousness from ancient, ancient times, beginningless time. We have karmic seeds for experiencing colors and sounds in very similar ways. A little different than, than um, a fish. Here's the sound of the river in a little bit different way, but also maybe dualistically, at least according to um, the story, all sentient beings, including fish, have this unceasing, unclear karmic consciousness with no foundation to rely on. That little beep, beep, I don't know if you heard him. It's, you know, I put my watch on that setting where it goes um, beep, beep. And uh, 
I use that setting not so much to like track time. I just use it so that um, every hour when this beep goes, I try to use it as, um, as my teacher saying, hey, you, what is it? Because um, if I just do this during zazen, I get so, so caught up in karma consciousness all day long. But at least every hour when I hear this beep, I'll stop what I'm doing and um, stop, try to stop. Like as if the watch said, hey, you, Kokyo. And then, um, but not stop there. Sometimes we have this mindfulness bell practice. Tassahara kitchen in the middle of um, chaotic meal preparation with 20 people all chopping away. Someone will ring a bell and everyone is asked to stop what they're doing and breathe a few times and then go back, return. So I think it's kind of a a sudden shamatha practice, but the Tenzo never asks, what is it (laughs) at these times? So they could. But I like to, when when that watch beeps, I like to stop, but not just breathe and be present. That's pretty good already. That's that I appreciate doing that very much. But actually to ask, what is it? And look back away from the, all this conceptual stuff that I'm totally engaged in, usually at the time. Step back and um, into the space of knowing presence and ask, what is it? And was that sound actually inside or outside? And was it any, was that, sound anything other than hearing of it and was the hearing anything other than awareness itself and then i um, quickly re-engage my karmic consciousness because i got stuff to do but it's nice to stop once in a while or longer or more often stop and see ask what is it so um now we're getting into this territory right of how the karmic consciousness unceasing and unclear conditioned uh conceptual dualistic is not actually other than pure buddha nature unconditioned unmoving non-conceptual non-dual they're two perspectives on the same reality. And uh, in the commentary to this story for today, it's case 37, Song, the commentator, brings up another story, which personally I like even more than the main case itself because it brings up this non-duality of karmic consciousness and Buddha nature. So, um, but in a very similar way. So in this story, this similar story, a monk asks another teacher, Yunnan, he says, this ancient treatise says that the fundamental affliction of ignorance, you could say in parentheses, karmic consciousness, is itself the immutable knowing of all Buddhas. 
That's, that's like a big statement. The fundamental affliction of ignorance, boundless, unclear karmic consciousness, is itself the immutable, means unchanging, ever-present, unmoving, knowing of all Buddhas. This principle is most profound and mysterious in the extreme, so difficult to comprehend, this monk says to Yunnan. And uh, Yunnan says, actually, it's really totally clear. It's really easy to understand. And, uh, and, um, and Yunnan says, I'll show you how easy it is to understand. And uh, in a very similar manner, a boy happens to be walking by in the monastery and um, or actually he's sweeping. He's busy sweeping some activity. And um, Yunnan calls to this monk and says, um, hey, you. Hey, venerable. And the boy turns his head like sentient beings do. And uh, Yunnan gestures to this to the monk and says, is this not the immutable knowing of all Buddhas? This moment of pure, present, stopping, before he even asks, um, you know, what is it? This is Buddha nature, but we don't quite know it until we investigate. The boy is, just, is present in his true nature, but... Um, he doesn't. He can't do anything with it. He's just present and and uh, and alert. And then um, Yunnan asked the boy, "What is your Buddha nature?" Because it's a conceptual question. It's a great one, right? What is your Buddha nature right now? <laughs> but because it comes in this conceptual package, and this monk is like he knows about these Buddha nature teachings and. The teacher's asking him this question, so he gets all flustered. And the, uh, the, um, the boy looked left and right and <laughs> looked around at a loss, like bewildered and confused, and like walked away, ran away. <laughs> and, uh, and Yunnan gestured to the boy and said, is this not the fundamental affliction of ignorance? These, these great Vipassana questions. What's your Buddha nature right now when you stop? But the poor monk is looking left and right. And Chinese literally says, he looked over there for his Buddha nature. And then he looked over there for his Buddha nature. Not over there and over there. He immediately started looking outward towards some, trying to find it out there somewhere. Or in there in his karmic consciousness thought realm um, and got kind of freaked out by the question and ran off. So, um, so, so I think this story is really nice because it, um, it says that the fundamental affliction of ignorance and the immutable knowledge knowing of all Buddhas is, um, are one and the same. They're, they're fused. There are two perspectives. This, this young boy has complete, perfect Buddha nature, which is 
also called the immutable knowing of all Buddhas, the unchanging knowing of all Buddhas. But it appears as soon as he's asked a difficult conceptual question, his immutable knowing of all Buddhas suddenly appears as the fundamental affliction of ignorance. Karma consciousness kicks in immediately and effortlessly and um, he's lost. Um, but the commentator Wansong says, if you can comprehend how in this way the fundamental affliction of ignorance is itself the immutable knowing of all Buddhas, you become a Buddha immediately. This is the realization of Buddha. The non-duality of the fundamental affliction of ignorance and the immutable, indestructible, unchanging knowing of all Buddhas, always at peace and at ease, even while it's expressing itself as great pain and sorrow. So the, uh, the verse that versifies this case 37 in the book of serenity, Tian Tong Hong says, one call and he turns his head. Do you know the self or not? Here we're talking about true self is another name for the immutable knowing of all Buddhas, Buddha nature. One call and he turns his head. Is this not the knowing of the true self? Versus one call and he turns his head. Do you know the true self or not? And then vaguely, like the moon through ivy, a crescent at that is expressing the, what's your Buddha nature? Uh, um, um, uh, going out. Okay. Yeah. Fundamental affliction of ignorance, karmic consciousness is, is poetically expresses we do even in the midst of karma consciousness we see the true self we uh, buddha nature is shining through but vaguely like the moon seen through ivy a crescent moon at that the moon is is a uh, classic symbol for Buddha nature, always complete, always serene, unchanging. Moon is always the case, but, um, and it's always round and, and full, but depending on how the light is shining on it, we only see bits of it. When it's really full, sometimes the full moon is uh, offered as an image of like complete round fullness of uh, 
being Buddha nature with no obscurations, obscuring it. And then when there's less um, light shining on it, we can still see some of the Buddha nature, but just a crescent. In this case, a thin crescent of Buddha nature can still be seen, not only a thin crescent, but through ivy. I think this is our situation of karmic consciousness. We see it broken up in the spaces between the ivy. We see the bits and pieces, specks of crescent moon through ivy. That's karmic consciousness. And I think it's a beautiful image because I think what it's expressing is that even in totally caught up in karmic consciousness, there is still a present knowing. There always is. There's always present knowing. It's just that, that it's kind of receded to the background because we're so involved in the conceptual content of our experience that um, the present knowing of the experience, the awareness itself, is, seems to be hidden by our conceptual obsessions, doesn't it? But it, not, it never actually goes anywhere. The moon's there, just a sliver of light that we see. That's basically the fact that we're alive and aware, you could say, is that sliver. They say there's two, two obscurations that obscure Buddha nature. There's afflictive obscurations. It's like... Um, Greed, hate, and delusion um, are emotional obscurations, particularly greed and hate. They really seem to block our Buddha nature. It's shining in the midst of greed and hate, but they're so powerful. They seem to hide it because because they engage us so much in greed and hate and in the stories that fuel greed and hate. We're We're so immersed in the stories that we don't know Notice that there's a present awareness that's knowing these stories, the same present awareness as all the Buddhas. So that, you could say the afflictive obscurations are like the, um, the ivy that's blocking the, uh, the radiance of the moon of Buddha nature. And then there's the cognitive obscurations which are basically more subtle form of obscuration. It's basically just dualistic thought, but not even dualistic, not even just dualistic thought, but dualistic perception. The fact that we're, we're looking at a color over there and it seems to be apart from the knowing of it. It seems to be other than mind. We hear a sound. It seems to be other than awareness itself, other than Buddha nature Cognitive obscuration is just the basic dualistic uh, illusion of karmic consciousness. Much more subtle, like we can remove the ivy of greed and hate, but still there's this, um, the moon is not seen in its full brightness unless we really um, let the light fully engulf it. So they, they say that practice is, is nothing other than, um, sometimes they say removing, but maybe we could say seeing through these two obscurations, the, 
there are afflictive obscurations, emotional obscurations, and the cognitive, very subtle cognitive obscurations of dualistic perception, which is not reality. It's, it's an illusion, but it's all sentient beings um, are immersed in this illusion. So the, um, this verse of hunger says, one call and he turns his head. Do you know the true self or not? Even when confused, vaguely, it's known like the moon through ivy, a crescent moon at that. The child of riches, as soon as he falls on the deserted road of destitution has such sorrow, which is referring to the classic Lotus Sutra story of the the son of the wealthy king who completely endowed with um, the immutable knowing of all Buddhas, but gets caught up in karma consciousness and wanders off thinking he's a poor beggar and forgets all about his endowment of Buddha nature. Uh, the child of riches, as soon as he falls into poverty on this road of destitution, has such sorrow. Is it not the case for us sentient beings? So that's some thoughts on some karmic karmically conditioned thoughts on a beautiful story of the ancestors packaged in lots of conceptual words that um, that maybe um, obscure the moon a little bit, Father wordiness, the ivy words and the um, the shadow words. but meanwhile, um, our moon, our shared moon. Not like we each have a different moon. There's only one moon. That's enough. That's another discussion. Uh, do you have any thoughts? Statements or um, or especially statements about what is it? But anything that comes up around this, especially if anything is not clear. <laughs> Kokyo, thank you so much for this uh, provocative, illuminating, stopping <laughs> story. Um, so anyone who has comments, questions, responses, please, you can raise your hand if, we're, if you're visible. For people who are not, uh, space is not visible, you can go to the participants window, uh, and then at the b- bottom of that, there's a raise hand function. So uh, David Ray, would you help uh, call on people, please? But please, um, comments, responses for Kokia. I see Mike's hand. 
and then Paul, Mike first. Thank you for the talk, Kokio. I really, really enjoyed uh, well, case number 36 and your- 37. 37, I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that was my uh, karmic consciousness speaking. I was, those were conditioning thoughts, I wasn't aware of. <laughs> uh, case 37 <laughs> and your discussion around it. Um, one thing that occurred to me, and I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on it, is whether this act of calling out, hey, you, and then asking, what is it? Or uh, driving someone out of the Zendo with your staff and then asking, what is it? Um, or, for example, me raising my hand and then asking what is it when somebody calls on me, if part of that might be creating an experiential moment of learning where by the person that's being asked this question is given a moment where they have behaved automatically in a karmically conditioned way. In other words, you turn your head and someone asks you, what is it that you're doing? And that's a moment where you can see that you've responded in this, this automatic way. And that creates the spaciousness um, that allows you to see, well, not only am I behaving this way in this, this one moment when someone's swinging a staff at me and I run away or when someone calls out my name and I turn my head, but I also do this throughout my life constantly. And yet here I am aware of that fact. And so what is this moment now and how is it distinguished or synonymous um, with those other moments? Um, I've, I've thought about this in the context of, of video games too, that try to strive t uh, towards getting somebody into a mindful state. Uh, video games obviously have this Pavlovian sort of function where you retrieve coins and slay monsters and things like that. And yet there are some that kind of have this more thoughtful approach to it um, where they make you do that. And then the next moment they say, why did you do that? Um, and they kind of pull the veil away and say, why were you operating this conditioned way? Um, and that's, that's kind of stepping to the side a little bit. But I, I was just curious about whether you think that's um, potentially part of, of case number 37 or um, if, if maybe I'm kind yeah, of... I think, I think you bring up a great point that, um, that uh, you know, here I was talking about it as this turning the head with Hey You was like, this fresh um, kind of non-karmically conditioned response. But actually what you bring up is true that um, when we hear our name or somebody call, that is a kind of conditioned, um, even you could say karmically conditioned response. So, so I think that's a good point that, that uh, it's less complicated and, and and murky and unclear as you know very conceptual activity but we i think that's true we could say turning the head when we hear our name is a uh, is karmically 
conditioned in a very sort of simple way. And, um, and maybe at the same time, it offers this moment of, of stopping, kind of cutting through um, conceptuality because it's so simple, uh, at least cutting through conceptuality. But um, as you say, I think that's a way to look at it too, is it's a karmically conditioned response, but then because it's simple, we can see then how it was a karmically conditioned response and wonder about that or ask, what is this? Or how is it that, um, that, uh, that turning the head can just happen like that? Yeah. I think in, in Zen, there, there tends to be this almost like style or understanding that um, these kind of like being, being completely immersed in an activity or um, uh, a, a simple non, non-conceptually elaborated uh, response or activity is like the pure expression of Buddha nature. So we have like, you know, chopping wood and carrying water is the miraculous function of all the Buddhas. Um, you don't hear that outside of Zen so much, that kind of thing. Outside, maybe in Indian Buddhism, they say, wait a second, chopping wood and carrying water is also just karmic consciousness, you know, <laughs> conditioned activity. But I think Zen has this way of saying, in these fresh, um, simple, um, straightforward activities, uh, Buddha nature is more easily revealed. I think that's part of the story here, too. So, yes, technically speaking, we could say turning the head is karmically conditioned, but it's, it's, uh, it's a less elaborated version of it that offers more potential. Next. Yes, uh, Paul, what is it? Yes, uh, thank you very much. You, you had me going there. I, 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 you had me riveted to uh, everything you were saying. I was trying to to understand your um, <laughs> your point of view, and you 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 had me quite quite intensely listening to to your to how you were presenting. I mean, it was very skillful, um, and you seem to keep dipping in and out of this idea that there is that there is uh, karmic consciousness, which is. You know, basically the theme song of of of, um, of our of our life of our of our of our of, our, of samsara itself, and then this then Buddha nature or nirvana, which is some other state. You kind of you kept dipping into like there were there were two, and then there one, there two, and then there one, and um, <laughs> I was just really really intrigued the way that you played with that with that situation. Um, anyway. Uh, uh, it was definitely very, very, um, a very, very, very teach te- teaching method, and I appreciate it. Uh, I personally have a, a practice of saying, "This is it," rather than "What is it?" Um, and throughout my throughout my day, but um, that's a little, maybe a little bit more, more a little bit more direct, a little bit more. Uh, uh, not leaving room for unknowing. Anyway, mm. I, I, I I like the aura. I like the, the the sea of unknowing that you develop in in in, in this this talk that 
that uh, leaves us questioning where's what where's where's samsara where's nirvana thank you thank you very much you're welcome yes i, I like that this is it is um isn't that the name of Tigan's book too? just this is it so um uh dung shan um statement right um yeah in a way i think we could hear this is it uh maybe nicely joins together the practice of stopping because it's like this right now, there's nothing other than this. It has a kind of stopping and stilling quality. And um, it has a kind of seeing quality too, because um, uh, maybe naturally comes along with the, with the wonder at what is this, even without asking that this is it, but then what is we have to, when we say this is it, we kind of look to see what it is too. Maybe you could even say it's the answer to the inquiry. What is it? The answer is this is it. So it's kind of like, it's like, it's like skipping the step of asking and just arriving directly at stopping and seeing. <laughs> we could say and i like that you brought up the point of samsara and nirvana because that i think fits very nicely with this discussion we could say um what is you know the uh the you know hey you and the, the monk turns his head that is nirvana <laughs> from a zen point of view and uh what's your buddha nature uh i'm not sure that's samsara and they're they're both uh inseparable the very nature of in the mahayana teachings right the the very nature of samsara the true nature of samsara is nirvana and nirvana is expressed as samsara it manifests as samsara or even uh, more wonderfully as our Teacher Tenshin Roshi once said, uh, samsara is, maybe better to say, nirvana is, um, we should say it in this order, samsara is nothing other than meddling with nirvana. (laughs) And nirvana is nothing other than not meddling with samsara. That's another way to talk about the relationship between these two. Thank you. Douglas. Thank you, Kokio. Um, I wanted to ask um, whether there there really is anything beyond karmic consciousness. And if there's a problem that there's karmic consciousness, or if the problem is rather that as we experience karmic consciousness, we grasp conceptually or in our perception some aspect of our consciousness, some thing, um, focusing on it, and then some element of one of the other afflictions attaches at the same time, some uh, you know, greed or hatred attaches mm-hmm. at the same time as we grasp some aspect of yeah. our consciousness. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. Uh, I think um, 
kind of like strictly speaking, I think some Buddhas would say that karma consciousness itself is, you know, is already a kind of grasping. That uh, just dualistic consciousness, the fact that we that we're looking at this black border around the Zoom screen and um, seeing it as um, outside of the mind, even without any afflictive like stuff going on that some would say that that already is a kind of grasping. It's this very subtle grasping. And, and the Buddha's definition of suffering, or we could say discontent, is grasping, actually. So, so this would be a very subtle version. Like when we see this um, computer screen in front of us, and it seems to be outside of us, there's, that comes along with a little bit of discontent. I would actually say, like, I don't feel so bad about seeing the screen over there. In fact, it's a nice computer, and I just got it. It works great. And, like, but the Buddhists say, no, actually, just that setup, that dualistic perception even, is not fully, is not the bliss, the, the um, immutable, joyful, unchanging bliss of all the Buddhas. Because... If somebody suddenly smashes the computer, we're like, ah. Um, so it's so strictly speaking, I think you could say there's um, just karma consciousness itself is already a kind of grasping. But I think what you're saying is a good point that we can be with it in such a way that we're not like adding to it. We're not we're not getting more averse to our karma consciousness. We're not trying to get rid of it because that's more aversion. And we're not trying to get more of it, we're just grasping. But I would say the key thing is, um, it is um, for the full, the, full, the full story, is that it's not just a matter of being with our karmic consciousness. It's the seeing of its true nature, mm-hmm. which is actually non-dual Buddha nature. Um, and, and, and at the time of seeing this, we don't eliminate the karmic consciousness, which is, I think, part of what you're saying here. We don't have to eliminate it. I mean, some, again, kind of Indian stories, which some would say, like, the fully awakened Buddhas have eliminated the karmic consciousness. They're not sentient beings anymore. But usually in Zen, we say, like, and on the Bodhisattva path, we'd say, well, we're okay with living in karmic consciousness as a bodhisattva, we're okay with living there because there's all these other beings with karmic consciousness, and that's how we can help them. And uh, But as a bodhisattva, we also vow to see through the illusion of karmic consciousness while remaining in it. So, um, And part of that, I would say part of it is a matter of just accepting it and being with it. I would say that's the starting point. Is uh, First, we just accept it. That's kind of the stopping part. We settle, we're not so involved in being, okay, I can't find anything other than this karmic consciousness. And that's another nice point you make. There's, there, you're right. There's nothing other than it. And yet this Buddha nature, this non-dual awareness, is not karmic consciousness. But it's not a thing, another thing, in addition to karmic consciousness. You can follow yeah, well, I think um, I'll go back to Dogen a little bit <laughs> with the, taking the backward step that shines the light within. 
mind and body up off and your my original mind appears um, that appearing might be oh uh, there's a there, there's a stop and you're not enclosed in the grasping there's an opening and you might recognize this opening yeah as, I think uh, that's a great line of the Derby. barriers mm-hmm. are gone um, the, you know the dragon has escaped and the tiger have escaped their cages and have entered the water and are now roaming the mountain we've come out of that cage of this conceptual understanding that has closed us in and separated us from the rest of the world and we can recognize that okay there's been an opening here but still we perceive and there's still to get to a perception there has something beyond mere sensation and that would seem to be conceptual understanding, which is also karmic consciousness. Well, maybe we could just use problem. Dogen's line to, to comment on this. And, and, um, and uh, that's right, Tur- turn the light around and shine it back, which I would say is like, stop and ask, what is it? And then um, body and mind of themselves will drop away. And then we could say, like, the body and mind we usually think of as something other than awareness. We think there's a solid body that's like, is known by awareness that's happening to awareness rather than the body is an expression of awareness and mind, conceptual mind, the same. So that version of body and mind can say drop away and your original face will manifest your Buddha nature um, will manifest. But then nicely, this, I, this saying, body and mind drop off. But then practically speaking, of course, Dogen still could like walk around right, with, with arms and legs <laughs> and what we call a body. So that's a nice example of body and mind have dropped off in their usual way that we understand them. And yet there's still um, this appearance of body and mind. And we could even say conceptual mind. Dogen could write stuff and say stuff. He couldn't do that if there wasn't conceptual mind. But there's this new perspective on them now. So that you could say, that, then we could ask, is that, is that mind of Dogen that's like remembering these Zen stories and writing them down and commenting on them, is that karmic consciousness? And that's, that's a question we could ask. We could say, well, it sure looks like it. <laughs> but um, in order to you know write words and speak and language and stuff, but we could also say it's not really karmic consciousness because um, it's known that it's completely a dreamlike illusion appearing in that way that really nothing is changing at all. But we could call it in quotes karmic consciousness, uh, and Dogen vowed to uh, continue. Uh, to express something like karmic consciousness so he could write the Shobogenzo and so on. But I think that, that's a question we could sit with is once you realize that karmic consciousness is an illusion, is it still karmic consciousness? Let's see, Thank David. You. Thank you so much, Kokyo. Thank you for your talk. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, there's a phrase in the in the case. Um, I forget exactly how it goes, but but I think it's it's, it's like with without foundation. 
Oh yeah, we didn't talk about that so much. Yeah. So, I, well, I, I, I wish I wish you would. Like, what, what does it mean for karmic consciousness to be without foundation? Yeah, and and Douglas kind of brought that up too. If kind of saying, well, do we thinking that there's something other than that, something to rely on, right? So I think that's a that's I think a interesting point in this case because in a way we could say this Buddha nature is a, a fundamental, a foundation, a basis to rely on. Um, sometimes it's actually spoken of in that way, but in this case, I think it's pointing out the, that we're we're always looking for some foundation to rely on, and we can even make Buddha nature, our true nature into this kind of thing like well now i understand this and i got this and that's my refuge and reliance and uh and i think if we rely on it in the way that we rely on everything else which is as some object some experience or object happening to me then um it's an un it's not a worthy um reliance it's 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 shake it's not mutable it's shakeable it's we can lose it. If it's something that could be found, then it's something that could be lost. Uh, and yet, um, without calling it a foundation, and maybe we shouldn't call um, Buddha nature a foundation, which is one translation of this. I think Thomas Kaleri translated it as fundamental, but maybe we could translate it as foundation. Uh, Buddha nature is not exactly a, a uh, kind of cement foundation that we could build a a house of contentment on <coughs> because it's not cement. It's not anything at all. Uh, and yet we take refuge in Buddha. Refuge is almost like a, a reliance. Um, so, and, and Buddha could be understood as this ever-present immutable Buddha knowing. So um, I think it's a, it's a fine line here in the story. Maybe we could say that it's emphasizing in this case, there's no foundation or fundamental or basis, anything like that to rely on in any graspable way. We don't want to look for a foundation in the same way we look for everything else to kind of stabilize us and, and, um, and um, a way we look for other types of security in this life. It's not one of those types of security. And yet, it's the all-pervading, um, ultimate security. Emptiness. Emptiness. Yeah, maybe pointing more to the, uh, if we say it as emptiness rather than Buddha nature, the value of that is you really can't find anything there. Sometimes it's said that emptiness is a synonym of Buddha nature. And if we wanted to nuance them, why use one over the other? Usually it's Buddha nature is emptiness, but it's a kind of knowing emptiness. It's the, it is, it is the knowing of emptiness that it and is emptiness as knowing. But Prajnaparamita emptiness doesn't really emphasize the knowing, aware, uh, 
aspect. Well, it kind of does because it's prajna. Yes. Does that does that kind of uh, go somewhere near the where your question was coming from? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much, Kokyo. Uh, I think we have time maybe for one more comment or response if anyone has something. I especially um, uh, invite the assembly to to consider this um, uh, experientially, this investigation of what is it um, in terms of uh, colors, sounds, bodily sensations, emotions, and thoughts as um, can we find any of those experiences in addition to the knowing of them. For me, that particular uh, investigation is quite potent and subtle. Thank you all. Oh, uh, Corrine. Does Corrine want to? Oh, oh yes, <laughs> Corrine, please. Yes, Corrine. So in. Uh oh. So You're broken up. So what is the relying? In song of the trust in my in the song of the trusting mind. How should I approach the song of the trusting mind in relation to what you were teaching today? The trusting mind is trusting what? Yeah. What is the trusting mind trusting in? Yeah, I think I followed that. Um, it, what is of... the trusting mind trusting in? Yes. Oh. Got it. <laughs> It's it's bad. It's a bad internet connection, Kareem. But I got but I got it in this in the uh, third ancestor's song of the trusting mind. What is the mind trusting in? And um, in terms of today's talk, it's a uh, it's trusting the immediate presence that we can access anytime the watch beeps or someone calls us and trusting that that's not just a, um, a simple uh, human response, 
but is um, boundless, immutable Buddha nature um, with nothing lacking at all in that moment. And if we stop to check it, um, in the next moment, we might feel like there's something lacking or extra in our life. But if we, if we stay with the, that present moment and say in that moment of turning our head, was there anything lacking or extra? We could, I think, confirm that no, there wasn't anything missing, it, it, perfect and complete. And then our conceptual mind kicks in. But we can trust the present uh, experience and the experiencing of it, which are inseparable, and uh, know that truly uh, just this is it. Thanks. Good to see you, Kareen. Good to see all of you. May our intention equally extend to every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to be coming. David, David, would you please lead us in the a Song of the Grass Hut chant? Yes, I will do that. Let's see, I'll make sure that everybody is muted. Um, and then I will lead us in that chant. This is a nice song about trusting, Kareem. And the screen. Here we are. And we'll, we'll start with the repentance first chanted three times. All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Song of the Grasshopper I've built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. When it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived in, covered by weeds. The person in the hut lives here calmly, not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. Places worldly people live, he doesn't live. Realms worldly people love, she doesn't love. Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. 
In ten feet square an old man illumines forms and their nature. A Mahayana Bodhisattva trusts without doubt. The middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present, not dwelling south or north, east or west. Firmly based on steadiness, it can't be surpassed. A shining window below the green pines, jade palaces or vermilion towers can't compare with it. Just sitting with head covered, all things are at rest. Thus this mountain monk doesn't understand at all. Living here, he no longer works to get free. Who would proudly arrange seats trying to entice guests? Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. The vast inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. Meet the ancestral teachers, be familiar with their instructions, bind grasses to build a hut, and don't give up. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. Thousands of words, myriad interpretations, are only to free you from obstructions. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from this skin bag here and now. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted the song of the grass hut. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, Wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita.